Hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Good to see you all. My name is Vince Pieri. Some of you guys know me. I'm on staff here at the church. I used to be the worship director, and I have moved over to the children's ministry a few months ago. It has been a blast being the kids director, and God is doing some really cool things there. Um, I would actually love to just stand up here and talk to you for 45 minutes about what God is doing in kids ministry. But that is not what we're doing today. We are doing part seven of Onward. Raise your hand if you've enjoyed this series so far. All right, it's been great. I think it's been great. If you uh, haven't been here, the whole idea of this series is right up on the screen. It's based on the book by Russell Moore, and it's all about how we can engage the culture outside of the church without losing the gospel. And what that means is basically over the years, the culture outside of the church in America has become increasingly different than the church, than the culture inside the church. And there was a time where everybody knew that church was good and everyone would call themselves a Christian and everyone agreed that Christian morals were good and that is no longer the case. And that produces some temptations for us as a church that sometimes in an effort to reach the culture outside of the church that we say, well, maybe we can just tweak the message a little bit. Maybe we can water it down or change some of it so that it's more relatable to people, which is not what God wants us to do. That's not the, that's not the plan. And the other temptation is to say, okay, well, the culture is so different and so bad and so unlike how we are as a church that we want to just push them away and strong on them and just kind of hunker down in the church and say, we're, you know, we've got it all together and they're totally messed up and not be trying to reach people for Jesus anymore. And that's also not the plan. And so this church, this uh, book is all about how we as a church can go forward bringing people to Jesus in a way that's going to make sense to them without losing the message of Jesus and repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's what this whole series has been about. This morning, this sermon is really kind of the rubber meets the road sermon. It's the most practical, it's the most like, okay, here's what we're going to do now because of everything that we've learned, everything we've been talking about. And it is all about, let's say it out loud. I've been picking up some uh, tools from the kids' ministry to keep people engaged. <laughs> and I'm going to try them all out on you today. Convictional kindness. When I found out that I was preaching the convictional kindness sermon, I was kind of bummed, actually. Because I thought that this meant that we're supposed to be kind to people because of our conviction as Christians. And I was like, I always get the fluffy ones. I always get the fluffy sermons. A few months ago, I did the friendship sermon. <laughs> then they give me the kindness one. They're like, Vince is a nice guy. Let's give him the kindness sermon. And I was like, you know, come on. But this is actually now what this is about. And when I actually read the chapter and learned what this is about, I was like, oh, this is actually something that's really been on my heart and God, something that God has really been teaching me and something that God has been teaching a lot of people that I hang out with and something that I believe God is really leading the church into anyways. It's something that I've been thinking about and praying about and we've been talking about as a staff and elder board. And so I'm so excited for what we're going to be talking about today. Here's what convictional kindness is. It is sharing Christian convictions in a kind way. That's what Russell Moore means when he says convictional kindness. You would not expect that from the grammar. It sounds like it's about being kind. But what he means is sharing Christian convictions in a kind way with people outside the church for the sake of leading them into a relationship with Jesus. What I'm going to tell you today is going to be very scary. But so good and so something that 
God is wanting to bless and produce and stir up in us as a church right now. And that's this, that convictional kindness must become normal. This is not normal right now. For a lot of us, this is the scariest part about being a Christian. And we all kind of know, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing that and I'm supposed to be talking about Jesus, but I do not want to. And it's something that we think, you know, is for somebody else. But listen, convictional kindness is not just for the pastors. It's not just for the elders. It's not just for the crew students who are already on fire for the Lord and want to tell everybody about Jesus. It's not just for the extroverts. It's not just for the social butterflies. It's not just for single people. It's not just for people with lots of free time. It's not for people that have, it's not just for people that have the gift of evangelism. That's what I hear a lot, you know, uh, I don't do this because I don't have the gift of evangelism. This is for everybody. Convictional kindness has to become normal for all of us. That it's for the business guys in the boardroom and the business women in the break room. And it's for the single moms at the park with the other moms. And it's for the parents at the bus stop and the, uh, talking to other parents at the bus stop. It's for the retired people who are trying to figure out how they can use the sunset years of their lives to bring glory to God and use those years productively. It's for the family man. It's for the single person. It's for everybody. And it has to become normal for our church. That's what I'm saying. That the scariest thing has to become the normal thing. If we're going to be ready for what God wants to do through our church. And through all churches. But especially what we're, everyone is really sensing. This is the thing. This is the thing that God is leading us into right now. And it's going to be the thing that we talk about in small groups. And we... It's just kind of the norm that we say, yeah, I've been talking to this person about Jesus and I've been reaching out to this person and something that God is already starting to do in our church. So this morning, how we're going to walk through this is I'm going to paint a picture of what convictional kindness looks like. We're going to kind of work through some definitions and some examples. I'm going to tell you some stories about stuff that God is doing in our church right now. And then second, I'm going to, we're going to work through some truths that we have to accept for convictional kindness to become normal. And these are all things we already believe. They're all things that all of you have already bought into. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know that these are all true, but we have to let them go from our head into our heart and acknowledge, okay, I know this is true, and so I have to start living accordingly. There's going to be a temptation all morning for you to feel guilty and bad and be like, I'm the worst Christian ever, and that is not true. You are loved by God and saved by the blood of Jesus and forgiven. And this is just the next step that God is leading us into. But we are all approved by God right now because of what Jesus has done. I'm going to pray, and then this is where we're going. You all ready? You all ready? Okay, God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open up my mouth to speak your words in a way that glorifies you, God. I ask that you would open up our hearts to hear from your word, that we could um, be empowered, that not condemned, but empowered and excited to be part of what you are doing in the world, God, and part of what you care so deeply about. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. What convictional kindness looks like? Let's take it one word at a time. First, convictional. This is what Russell Moore 
and scripture and what this sermon series means by convictional. Because when I think of Christian convictions, and I know that a lot of you have wrestled with this, and I've heard like people like Femi talks about this all the time, that there's, there's kind of two sectors. There's the whole just talking about Jesus, telling people about the gospel and the Bible and the truth of all that. But then there's also Christian conviction in terms of all the moral issues, sex before marriage and abortion and the homosexual and transgender gay movement and all that kind of thing. That's all one category. And what's the overlap between these? Are we supposed to be going out and just telling people that their morals should be different? Are we supposed to be leading them to Jesus? How do these two things go together? And Paul completely explains that in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Here's what he says. This is Paul writing to Timothy. If you grew up Catholic, this is the Apostle Paul. This is what he says to Timothy, who's one of his uh, protégés, one of his mentees. Here's what he says. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So this isn't about just arguing with people for the sake of arguing, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents. These would be people that disagree with the message of Christianity. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Everybody say repentance. Repentance meaning their personal faith in Jesus. The point of these conversations is to gently instruct them in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. As we enter these conversations with people, whether they're moral or just spiritual or both, the number one goal is always faith in Jesus. The number one goal is always bringing them to a place where they come to a relationship with God and put their personal faith in Jesus. That is always the number one goal. Any moral transformation is always the number two goal. The reason it's the number two goal is because if the number one goal stays the number one goal, the number two goal happens on its own. Because the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside them and convicts them of their sin and their need to change their thinking on their own. Uh, my girlfriend, Joanna, many of you guys know her. She's a fiery little redhead and a wonderful blessing from the Lord and is in the service right now, but I'm not going to look at her so she doesn't get embarrassed. But some of you know who she is, but this sermon is not about Joanna. She, uh, she does a lot of discipleship with young women. And a few years ago, she was meeting with this young woman who was a brand new Christian, brand new to faith. And this girl would literally come and meet with Joanna with things crossed out in her Bible with a Sharpie. You know, people like make jokes about that. Like, you know, if you don't like parts of the Bible, you just rip the page out or put or cross it out. She was literally coming into their meetings, crossing out things in the Bible. And Joanna was like, what do I do with this? But Joanna said, okay, the point is for her to grow in her faith in Jesus, not just to agree on all the moral things. So she never addressed it. She never was like, here's why the whole thing about, you know, the, what Paul talks about, female submission in the context of marriage, here's why that makes sense, or here's why that verse that you crossed out about God being about, you know, God being wanting sex to just be between a husband and a wife. Here's why that's really important. Here's why the logic makes sense. She would just skip right over it and just keep going after her own relationship with Jesus, her own faith in Jesus. She'd talk about the sins that this girl did know she was doing wrong and was convicted about and just kept hammering that home. And you know what? She got a new Bible and she stopped crossing things out. And the Holy Spirit did all that work on his own. And now she's part of the National Student Leadership Team for International Justice Mission. She was a missionary. She's got a wonderful, godly husband now. All because 
The main thing stayed the main thing. That's the mindset we all have to take. The main thing has to stay the main thing. If we convince people to just agree with our morality and never lead them into a relationship with Jesus, we have not done what Jesus himself did. Because people brought these moral questions to Jesus too, and they were like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Half the time he didn't even answer. He just skirted the question and brought it back to their own hearts and their own relationship with God. Sometimes you do have to talk about moral things for the sake of moral things. A few years ago I was hanging out with this uh, group of people and there was a girl there and she was like freaking out. And she was like, my boyfriend is at work and I don't have a car right now and stuff went bad last night and you need to drive me, to me, you need to drive me to go buy the morning after pill right now. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I was like, how does the morning after pill work? Is that the same thing as birth control? And and if, if she takes it sooner, will it actually be more humane? And she's going to take it anyways. And maybe if she takes it now, it's before conception. I'm working through all these things. And I'm like, I have, I'm not prepared for this. And then eventually I just said, listen, I can't drive you to take this because I believe that human life begins at conception and I cannot help you to do this. And she got very mad and it was a messy, bad situation. And on one level, I did the right thing there because I stood up for a Christian worldview, but I fell short in that moment because it was a perfect opportunity to say, hey, I don't just believe this because I logically, think human, I logically think human life begins at conception. I believe this because God said that he knit me together in my mother's womb, and he knew my name when I was in my mother's womb, and he knew your name when you were in your mother's womb. And if you give your life to Jesus, I can promise you that if you get pregnant, he will walk through this pregnancy with you, and he will provide for you, and he will take care of you, and he will love you despite anything you've ever done wrong. I totally missed an opportunity to keep the gospel the number one thing. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about convictional. It's not just philosophical arguments. It's not just, you know, bantering back and forth. We want to move people to a place of faith in Jesus and repentance. Amen? Amen. Okay, that's what we mean by conviction. Let me talk about kindness. Kindness is not... Just being nice. As I said before, and as we've been talking about, this is sharing convictions, but I just want to be so careful with this word so you, you don't get the wrong impression in your head. I was hanging out with a guy recently, a uh, business guy, not a church ministry guy, and he was like, I always hear from pastors that if I work hard and have integrity and show up on time, that it's going to be so different and stand out in the, in the work environment that people are going to want to know what's different about me. And he was like, that's how everybody in my work is. Everybody shows up on time. Everybody works hard. My company is doing trainings on, like, putting your family over work. And he was like, I'm living this way, and I don't stand out at all. Someone has to tell me what's next, what's after that. And it's absolutely true that we all need to conduct ourselves with integrity and work hard. And that does set an example. And that is the foundation for having conversations about Jesus. But it cannot stop there. What we're talking about when we're talking about kindness is that when we enter into these conversations, the mindset is that the other person is the priority rather than the argument being the priority. Does that make sense? that we love them more than we want to change them. Con convictional kindness says, I care more about you than changing your opinions. 
I care more about you and our relationship than changing your opinions about the things that we differ on. The only thing that someone likes more than a person who agrees with them in every way is someone who really likes them in every way. Does that make sense? If I got Bob and Bob agrees with me on all the issues but doesn't really like me, I would rather hang out with Jim who doesn't agree with me on anything but really likes me, really likes hanging out with me. That's the mindset that we have is that we always put the person first, that we say, look, I care more about you than changing your opinions. One of my really good friends is a, uh, he goes to High Point and he's a, he, had a, he has a mechanical engineering degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And right now he's working in a donut shop. That's, that's where God has him and it's through a bunch of circumstances. He knows that's where he's supposed to be. And it's in some ways been really hard for him. Um, but it's also been growing him and stretching him and God's been using him all sorts of ways. And, and uh, while he's been there, he's hanging out with all these guys who are not Christians. And a long time ago, he decided, I'm going to make convictional kindness be my norm. It's just going to be the way I live my life. And so all these guys he works with know that he loves Jesus and that he's a Christian. And they just dig. They dig at him. They always try to get him to swear. They'll be, you know, because they're like college age. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and uh, they're like, okay, if you had a female dog and you couldn't use the word female dog, what would you call it? And he'll be like, well, if I really couldn't say the word female dog, then I would use the word that you're thinking of, but I don't have to do that, and so I'm not going to say that. And some of you are just wondering, is he about to say it right now in this sermon? <laughs> like, oh no, where's Nick? <laughs> not going to say it. They just go back and forth all the time, and then we sit down and talk, and he's like, dude, I don't know what to do. I don't know what jokes to laugh at. I don't know what not to laugh at. You know, I, do I hang out with them when they're high and drunk or do I not? Or how, how do I handle this? And I'm like, I don't know, man. So we talk about it and we pray about it. And um, a, few, a few weeks ago, he went to one of their um, birthday parties and the, the guy was pretty intoxicated and he was like, dude, you know, you know what I just love about you is that you stand by what you believe in, but you don't force us to do your stuff. You don't force us to be like you. And he was able to share the gospel with him. And it turned out this guy was more open to Jesus than he thought he was. And they've been having an ongoing conversation and hanging out with him. And God's doing cool stuff. But all of that was possible because he came into that situation saying, God, help me to care more about these people than about changing their opinions. Help me to actually have your love for them in my heart. That's really hard to do. And if you don't have that love in you for the people you work with. I get it. I get it. And I don't want you to hear that you're a terrible person or anything like that. That love is a gift from God. The fruit of the Spirit is the first one, love. The Holy Spirit produces love in us. It is always a gift from God. So you can ask God, God, help me to care more about this person than changing their opinions. Convictional kindness looks like saying, I don't care about being right just for the sake of being right. I like being right. I love being right. I love arguing and winning the argument and going, well, I proved you wrong. And I think that's true for all of us, especially when it comes to things that we hold closest to our hearts. And I think there's a, when that's the case, there's always 
some fear tied in there. You know, fear of failure or fear of looking stupid or sometimes fear that you might be wrong. That deep down there's doubt in your heart about some of the core things you believe in. So when you get into a conversation, it flares up and you start getting angry. And it's really easy. It is really easy to do that. A while ago I was having dinner with a, a Christian husband and wife, people who are that older than me that I really respect and love and look up to. And it was them and a couple of their neighbors who were not Christians. And they started talking, we're having dinner, and then abortion, I think it was abortion that came up. And the husband, the two husbands start kind of debating back and forth about this. And I'm like excited to learn, like, okay, how do, how do I handle this? And it starts escalating a little bit, you know, getting a little intense. And I was like, okay, so maybe, maybe that's fine. You know, maybe it's good to like, you know, bring the heat a little bit. But then it was like really bringing the heat. And they were getting red in the face. And the wives started apologizing to each other for the husbands. They are like, I'm sorry. And I was like, man, this is really hard. It is really hard for even those of us that have been doing this for a long time and really love the Lord, that in the moment to say, look, I don't care about being right for the sake of being right. I don't need to argue about this to feel good about myself. I don't need to argue about this so I can prove something to myself. I care more about you than changing your opinion. I don't need to be right for the sake of being right. Convictional kindness looks like saying, I want to change your opinion because I care about you. Because I care about you. So we're not totally dodging it. We're not saying, you know, you're free to think what you think. We're saying, no, I actually really want to change your opinion. I want to change the way you think, but it's because I care about you, not in spite of it. One of, uh, one of my roommates is not a believer, and it's been such an adventure living with a non-believer. I haven't done that for a long time until I moved to Madison. and It's, it's been really intense and really good, and he's been... Um, taking steps forward towards Jesus, and then he'll take steps back, and he's working through it, and it's, it's cool. God is doing stuff in his life. But the, the day that I walked into the apartment and met with him, I said, listen, I'm just going to lay this all out in the front now. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I believe in heaven and hell, and I want to see you in heaven with me. And I believe the only way that you're going to be there is if you accept the love and grace and forgiveness that God wants to give you and to give your life to Jesus. And because I care about you and I want to see you there, I'm going to try to convert you. And if I'm ever coming on too strong, you just tell me and I will back off. But I just want you to know that on the front end. And he was like, all right, I can handle that. And I said explicitly, out loud, I'm going to talk about this because in my worldview, this is the way that I can care about you and love you the most. Now, you're not always going to probably be that direct with the people that you're having these conversations with. So I don't want you to hear that and think, okay, that's what I have to go do with everyone at my work. Or <laughs> that would be very intense, very intense. But if this is what's in your heart, it will come out. Does that make sense? If you really ask God, God, give me your heart for these people. Help me to love them like you love them. And you say, okay, I'm... I only care about having this conversation because I love you and I want to lead you to Jesus. That's what will come out. And they will know that. They will know that. It doesn't mean there's never going to be friction. There will still be friction sometimes, especially when it comes to the big moral issues. But if kindness is in your heart, kindness is what's going to come out. You all tracking? All right, everybody do a big stretch. 
Do a head roll, move your arms. This is kind of the halfway point. If you've been distracted, tune back in now. Great job, great job. I'm telling you, I'm learning stuff from those kids. It's good, it's good, it's good. This is what conviction of kindness looks like. We are always focused on bringing people to faith in Jesus. Moral transformation is always a secondary goal. And that looks like when we're in those interactions saying, look, I care more about you than changing your opinions. I don't care about being right for the sake of being right. And I only want to change your opinion because I care about you. This is not a frequent thing for most of us. I'm just going to say that out loud. And that's not true for every church. In some churches, this is normal, and we need to become that kind of church where this kind of thing is totally normal. It is totally normal, and we're all engaged in it. And it is something that over time we learn to overcome the fears around it. This is scary for me, but it is much less scary than it was like the first few times. Does that make sense? After you start to engage in these conversations, it gets really easy, at least a lot easier. So here are a few truths that we must accept for this to become normal. Like I said, these are all things that we already agree with. They're all things that we believe in. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't believe in these things. And that's okay, and we're so glad you're here, and you're going to be like, wow, this is some really intense stuff. And I'd encourage you to come talk to me after the service or talk to the person who brought you or ask some questions. And um, some of it is going to sound actually probably pretty offensive. So I'm sorry for that, but I am, I, this is what we believe as Christians. And we can walk you through why we believe it more than I might have time to do right now. Anyways. For all of us who are here and we've decided to follow Jesus, these are all core things that we all have already bought into and we need to let get from our head into our heart. This is the first truth. We are at war, but we're not at war with people. We are at war. We are not at war with people. For some of us, it is very hard to accept the fact that we're at war. We want to just stay in the mindset of like, look, Stuff's just kind of going okay, and God's going to do what God's going to do. And some people who are in full-time ministry can be really the ones reaching people, and I can kind of stay in the sidelines. That is not true. We are in a war that started when Satan tempted Eve and Adam in the garden, and it has continued on ever since then. But we are not at war with people. We are at war with Satan. Look at the passage again. Paul says this. Opponents must be gently instructed right here. In the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That's how Paul describes it. I'm not saying that everyone who is not a Christian is possessed by a demon. That is not at all what I'm saying. And I'm definitely not saying that everyone who's not a Christian is hell-bent on bringing destruction or hurting people or anything like that. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But what I'm saying is that they, you are either under King Jesus or you are under the realm of Satan. And you are under his influence and his manipulation and what he is trying to do in the world. Raise your hand if you remember the Coney 2012 thing from a few years ago. Raise it real high. It was all over Facebook. Some crazy guy in uh, Africa who was going around and 
forcing children to be in his army, his rebel army, and they were going around killing people, and he'd threaten them or beat them or threaten to kill the people that they loved to, to bring them into this rebel unit. And there was pictures all over with kids with guns and people with their noses cut off, and it was terrible. It was terrible. And when we saw those pictures, none of us were like, wow, those kids are awful. We need to send them to prison. They need to face the death penalty. We were all like, we need to get them out. We need to get them in families. We need to get them rehabilitated. We need to get them loved and, and protected and cared for and, you know, therapy and all of that kind of thing. That was everything we thought. That's how Paul describes the people that you work with. That's how Paul describes the people at the bus stop. That's how Paul describes the students around you if you're in college. That they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And by the grace of God, we are called to set them free. We're called to set them free. That's what we heard in the baptism stories just a few minutes ago. That, that uh, they were lost and they've been found. That is the call on our lives, that we're called to set them free. I'm not saying that non-Christians are worse than us at all. In fact, the, the moral views that non-Christian hold, non-Christians hold are very, usually in our culture, very intuitively right. I remember being seven and I had heard what, I had heard the phrase being gay and I didn't know what that was. And my mom sat me down, I don't remember if my dad was there or not, but my mom sat me down and she was like, um, I'm gonna tell you what being gay is. And I was like, all right. And she was like, it's when a man loves a man and they get married or a woman loves a woman and they get married. And at the time with no like knowledge of anything and just Christian upbringing and just Christian influence, I was like, why does that matter? I was like, why is that bad? Shouldn't they be allowed to do that if they want to? That is the most naturally intuitive belief. The people that do not agree with Christian values are not crazy. They're not like totally deranged and licentious and just wanting to do crazy stuff. With, if you remove God from the equation, everything they believe makes total sense. It's when you put God back into the equation and you look at history and you realize that God has a plan for our sexuality and that there's certain things he's trying to do in the world and that there's more to the story than you intuitively think on first glance. Then you realize, okay, God is so good and this totally makes sense. And of course, sexuality is meant for a husband and a wife. But on the other side, we sound crazy and heartless and all of that kind of thing. So when I say they're captive by the devil, I'm not saying they're bad people at all, at all. But their thinking is under, is not under the control of Christ. That is the people around us. Those are the people that we are called to love, to build relationships with, to not assume that they're simple, to not assume that they're not thinking clearly, that we are, we're not saved because we're smarter or more humble or think better at all, that we're saved because for every one of us, Jesus reached out and pulled us out of what we were in. And a lot of us are less even consistent with our moral views than non-Christians are with theirs. A lot of them stick to what they believe in more than we do. And some, for a lot of us, 
myself included, so much of my thinking has moved towards God and how God wants me to think against my will. Because the Holy Spirit just gets in there and starts working on me and doing things. And he makes me more like Jesus against my will. We need compassion and love and care. And to know that God loves people outside the church just as much as he loves us. And they are no different and no worse than us. And we are no better than them. We are at war. We are not at war with people. We are loving people. We are drawing people. We are caring for people. We are listening to them. We're letting them talk. We're letting them share what they think and bringing them towards Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right, second truth. This is another one. We already know this. Someone else's eternal salvation is more important than my earthly safety. We would all say that's true, but it is so difficult to live like that. And I don't even mean safety in the terms of like, if I tell someone about Jesus, I'm going to, you know, lose my job or something like that. I think that does happen every once in a while, but we're still not in a state in our country where that's like the norm. that You can't even open your mouth about Christ. You can take someone out to lunch, you can have someone over, and you can talk about Jesus still. So I'm not talking about that kind of safety. I'm talking about just the safety of saying, what are people going to think of me? Am I going to look awkward? Am I going to get labeled a certain way? Um, there was someone in first service who came up afterwards and said that... Um, when they found out he was a Christian at his work, they were like, you're a Christian? And they were like, but you're so nice. <laughs> that we don't, we're afraid of the Christian label because of how it's understood in the culture. That's a fear. There's also a fear for a lot of us, and stay with me because this is a little complicated, but this is so prevalent. This is so prevalent in churches everywhere. Is that we have so much fear about people outside the church bringing our country down and reducing it to nothing and reducing it to destruction, that when we sit down with someone who's not a Christian, that fear is so big in us that we can't separate it and just focus on the person. Does that make sense? That the fear is so strong that we just, we just keep labeling people outside the church as our enemies and they're ruining the future for our kids and we can't just love them as people. And for us to love them as people, we have to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that fear about the future of our country and I'm going to move it to the side. I'm going to push it to the side. I'm not going to say it's not legitimate, but I'm going to move it to the side so I can love this person sitting across from me, sitting at the chair, sitting at the coffee shop and say, how can I love this person right now? Someone else's eternal salvation is more important than my earthly safety. I got a big reminder of this last Monday at a prayer meeting that um, meets at Fran and Shirley Dietrich's house. Fran's an elder at the church, and there's some of us who just get together on Monday nights and pray. And there's a lady who's a little bit newer. Her name's Abby. And she started coming, and she said, hey, can I bring a, a friend of mine who's going on the mission field um, to the prayer meeting? And I was like, sure, absolutely. So he walks in, and he's got his, like, he's got a little piece of paper and I was like, okay, I think he's going to ask for money, which is fine. That's totally fine because we're all in the body of Christ. But I was like in a bad way kind of annoyed that this guy was coming to the prayer group with people he didn't know and was going to ask for money. And then he starts sharing. He, he starts reading off the paper and I'm like, and he's like a little nervous. And I was like, okay, dude, if you're going to come here and ask for money, like at least be confident about it. You know what I mean? Just totally judgmental in my heart. I'm just like the worst person ever in this moment. And in some ways in general. But he starts talking and he says, in a couple months I'm going to Boko Haram. And five of the missionaries that my mission agency has sent over have been killed. And three of them are in prison. And two of them are missing. 
and I, right now I have a broken relationship with me and my daughter, and I, I just don't want to be martyred until I can repair that relationship. And I was like, man. But then I thought about it a little more, and I was like, that's what we all signed up for. I'm not saying to go to Boko Haram, but we all said, yes, Jesus, I will take up my cross and follow you, whatever the cost. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to lose your life before you can find it. And we all said yes to that. And we all said, okay, I'm giving up this earthly life for the sake of trading it in for an eternal one with you. And we all, if we've placed our faith in Jesus, that's actually what happened. There actually is a place in heaven prepared for you. And you actually are seated with Christ in the heavenly, in the heavenly realms right now. But because that's true, that's why we can say, look, it's worth it. Someone else's eternal salvation is worth more than my earthly safety, whether it's in a big risk, facing a big fear, or just in a little way. I got a good friend named Tyler, who some of you know, he works for Campus Crusade. And uh, <clears throat> a couple years ago, he was at Panera, and he saw this politician lady, uh, who's actually pretty well known in Wisconsin. I'm not going to say her name because it's going to go online, and um, it's kind of like a, a little more personal story about their interaction. But, you know, it's someone that you would be a little intimidated to approach. But he felt like God said to him, you need to go share the gospel with her. So he was like, all right. So he walks over, and he's like, hey, I'm Tyler. She was like, hey. And he was like, I really appreciate some of the things you've done, you know, working across the aisle and with both sides of the political party. And she's like, cool, thank you. And then he was like, okay, bye. And then walked away. And then he was like, oh, no. He's like, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please give me another opportunity to do this. Two years later, he's in Panera again, talking to a guy there, and they're talking about church history, and they're in the middle of talking about how uh, the first Christians in the earliest days were just so bold in sharing their faith. And then he turns and looks, and there she is, walking out the door of Panera. And he goes, one second. <laughs> Runs out there. Runs in the parking lot. He's like, hey. And she's like, Tyler. And he's like, oh my gosh, you remember my name. And they start talking. And he's like, I work for Campus Crusade. And she was like, that's so cool. And she's like, I'm not a Christian, but, but I think that Christianity is so important for producing positive moral, morality in people and all that kind of thing. And he was like, yeah, I think so too. But what do you think is going to happen after you die? Do you think that you're going to see God? Are you going to meet him or not? Are you just going to cease to exist? Have you thought about that? Just like the most basic, like, question you'd think is there's no way it's going to land. There's no way it's going to work. And it was just, like, hitting her. Like, the Holy Spirit's just doing something in this moment. And she's like, I don't know. Uh, I need to think about this. And she gives him her personal email. And they start an email conversation. That has to become normal. Now, it's not always going to look that extreme, <laughs> but that mindset of I'm going to take advantage of whatever opportunity comes my way, that has to be normal. And that's only going to happen when we say, look, someone else's eternal salvation is more important than me looking stupid in the parking lot of Panera. Or bailing out of the conversation with this guy or messing up my schedule that we say, no, that's worth it. I'm just going to see if the door's open. I'm just going to see if God's doing something. I'm just going to knock on it and see what's going on on the other side. A few months ago, I was at the gym 
And uh, you know like in worship when the band really gets going and everybody's really singing, it's almost like you can feel something happening in the room. Like it's almost like the presence of God is in the room. Has anyone felt that before? It's an incredible feeling. And I was at the gym and I walked into the locker room and it was like the presence of God was in the locker room. And I was like, I have no idea what's going on. It feels like church in here. And then one of the gym employees walks in. And I'm like, God, maybe you want to do something right now. I don't know. I don't know if he does or not, but I'm just like, I'm just going to see what happens. So we start talking, and he shares that he wants to be a, he's, he's in school to be a paramedic, like an EMT. And so we're talking back and forth. And then he shares that he, his dad became a Christian and then passed away a few years before this. And he was like, because my dad converted to Christianity, I've been, like, thinking, like, maybe there's something to this. And wrestling through and, like, I don't know what I think, but the thing I just can't get past is the fact that all this bad stuff happens all the time. And how is God supposed to be good if all that happens? Looking at me, he's asking me that. And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor, so let me give you a great answer. Just kidding. I'm like, God, I have no idea what to say. So I'm just like, ah. And God just put it in my head. He's a, he's a paramedic. He's an EMT. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's okay. So I was like, okay. So let's say you have to, like, give a shot to, like, a one-year-old kid. And that kid's going to cry, right? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. So can you explain? You're really smart and you love this kid. Can you explain to the kid why you have to give him the shot? And he was like, no, I can't. And I was like, I think that's how it is with God. That there's just stuff about the way the universe works that we just can't understand. But that doesn't mean he's not loving. And he was like, that makes sense. And I was like, really? (laughs) He was like, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, what do I do now? And then I was like, you want to go to lunch tomorrow? And I'm like, oh, there's no way he's going to say yes to this. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. So we went to lunch the next day, and I shared the gospel with him, and he's open to it. We've hung out some since then, and we've texted back and forth, and um, he has not accepted Christ yet, but that's an open door now. Because I said someone else's eternal salvation is more important than me getting my biceps a little bigger. You know what I'm saying? I said, I'm going to pause this workout I'm going to maybe not even have this workout tonight because I'm going to take the opportunity to have a conversation with this guy and just knock on the door and just see, God, are you doing something in here? Because that guy's eternal salvation is more important than my schedule. It's more important than my earthly safety. It's more important than anything. That's what we're all called to. That's what we all signed up for. And it's scary. And it does get easier. It gets easier over time. And it's so fun. It's so fun. Like I just told you that story and a lot of you guys were like, wow, Vince, you're so cool. But that took me having to go through absolute terror. And I'm not saying the point is that we think each other are cool. I'm just saying we know that this is what God is about. This is what he's about. And we hear stories like that. You're like, wow, God totally moved in that moment. Those stories are for all of us, that we all can step into them. And God can use all of us in those ways. Last one, last truth that we have to accept. And this is the hardest one. This is by far the hardest one to accept. And when I put it up there, a lot of you are going to be like, I don't think that's that important. It's not that big of a deal. I already know that. Leave me alone. Don't try to make me feel things. But this is the most important truth just for our whole lives but especially for what God wants to do in us in terms of reaching people. Here's the truth. God actually loves you. 
He actually loves you. He actually cares about you. And we never graduate from needing to relearn that again and again and again. And as you learn that and you relearn it and you let God work in your heart, that always bubbles up and overflows into wanting to lead other people to the God that loves you so much. And I think we have, I think God is trying to do something in our church right now in helping us come to grips again with the reality of what we're talking about. Look what Paul says. We've all heard this verse before. A lot of us have. This is Ephesians 3. This is Paul writing to a group of people a lot like High Point that have been Christians for a while and they're doing a lot of things right. This is like the only letter that Paul wrote that he's not like in their face being like, what the heck are you people doing? These were all people that were doing well and understand the gospel, understand the love of God. And here's what he said to them. He said, I pray. This is Paul praying for them. And I believe this is God's prayer for us in our church. That I pray that you being rooted and established in love, meaning you already know the gospel, meaning you already believe God loves you, meaning you already believe in the cross and all those things. You've been rooted and established in love, but you need power. And that power is not to be better evangelists. That power is not to be more productive. That power is not to go around healing people. He's saying you need power together with all the church, all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This is not Sunday school stuff. This is not Christianity 101. This is the pinnacle of Christian maturity. That we would have power to grasp continually more and more the basics. That we are actually loved by God. To know this love in a way that surpasses knowledge. That we could be filled to the measure of all the fullness of what? Everybody say that word. One more time. If you understand the love of God, it doesn't fill you with just joy. It doesn't just fill you with peace. It doesn't just fill you with love. It fills you with God himself. And we need to come to grips with this again. This is what happens. Is we like hear a sermon like this and we're like, oh yeah, I want to do this. I want to be part of it. And so you, you reach out to somebody. You reach out to someone who doesn't know the Lord. You have them over for dinner. You go out to lunch with them. You take a couple steps down the road. Maybe you get them to come to church once. And some stuff happens and there's some good productive things that happen in the conversation. But then they kind of waver a little bit. And then where you were pursuing them really hard, you lose interest. And you stop pursuing them. And the reason that happens for all of us is because that's how we picture God. We feel like he pursues us to a point and then he loses interest. He pursues us to a point and then he says, okay, I'm done. You can just do your own thing now. That is not the God that we follow. God pursues us always. He never loses interest in us. He never loses interest in us ever. A parent doesn't lose interest in his children. And whatever God was doing in your life when he first brought you to faith, whatever God was doing in your life and maybe some of the darkest times in your life, whatever he was doing in your life when he was teaching you the most, that is still God's heart for you. He still has the same level of interest in you. He still is pursuing you. He still is working on you. And until we can accept that, it is always going to be so difficult for us to pursue people. I think for a lot of us, one of the big blocks is that we feel like God is super excited about forgiving our sins up to the point that we decided to follow Jesus, and he is not as into forgiving our sins after we decide to follow Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? That once we follow Jesus, then if we're doing something wrong, we're like, okay, God, I know better now. And we think, okay, 
there's no, I, I think you probably forgive me, but there's no way that you still love me even though you're forgiving me that I'm dealing with this thing. In Kids Church, we were talking about being gracious. And I was talking about being gracious, Ben, and I was saying being gracious, you know, being kind and compassionate and loving. And there's a group of like 15 kids, and I was like, is God gracious to you when you do all the right things, when you do good things? And they were all like, yes, for sure. And then I was like, is he gracious to you when you do bad things? And like half of them were like, no. And half of them were like, yeah. And then a seven-year-old girl raised her hand and gave the most thoughtful, nuanced, incorrect theological statement I've ever heard. She said, she was totally confident. She said, God is gracious to you when you do bad things, but he doesn't like to be. And I was like, that makes total sense that she would think that. It's just seeped into her because that's so often how we think that, yeah, God will be gracious to us after we become Christians if we're still not doing everything perfectly, but he doesn't like to be. And we got to kind of twist his arm and manipulate him and get him to forgive us again and again and again. And we're like, oh, gosh, you must be so sick of me, God. It is not true. It is not true. The grace that God poured out on all of us in the moment that we accepted him is the grace that he pours out on us over and over and over again every single day. And he never gets tired of it. He never gets bored of it. Look at Micah's, uh, Micah 7 right here. This is God talking to the remnant of Israel. These are the people that have hung on and they're not perfect, but these are the people that are still following him on some level. And he says, uh, this is Micah writing, he says, Who is a God like you, just blown away by the graciousness of God? And he says, Who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Mercy. Who needs mercy? Not the people doing everything right. The people that need mercy are the people that are still messing up. So if you have that feeling in you of, man, I still do not have this together. God is excited to show you mercy. He delights in it. He's like, this is my favorite thing to do. I just love forgiving you. I love loving you. I love caring about you. I never get tired of having you come to me and going, God, I've done it again. I've messed it all up and I can't get better. That's what he loves to hear from us. He delights in showing mercy. It's his favorite thing to do. That's why we say, who is a God like you? Who pardons sins and forgives transgressions over and over and over again? That is the God that we worship. That is the God that we follow. And he never gets bored of it. He never gets tired of it because that is who he is. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 5a. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's a demonstration? Think about a demonstration in life. Demonstrations is you go out there on the streets, right? And you're like, I'm so passionate about this that I just want to go out there and show everyone what is just, just heating up inside of me about this issue. That's what God did. He was so hot and bothered for sinful, despicable, terrible people that he loved us so much while we were still sinners that he said, I need to demonstrate what's inside of me by sending my son to the cross. The cross is the purest picture of God's love, but it is not the totality of God's love. God loves us even more than we could ever imagine. The cross is a demonstration of what is just fire in, fiery inside the heart of God. Not for the good people, not for the people that have it all together, but for the people who need mercy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the God that we follow. I walk around High Point in the lobby, and it's like you can feel just a little bit of guilt. 
the little bit of condemnation that we walk around with. And we oftentimes tell ourselves, look, I think it's kind of right to feel a little bit of guilt, right? I think it's kind of right to feel a little bit of like, yeah, I still suck. And there's a big difference between saying, I still have sin issues and walking around with a little bit of guilt, a little bit of fear of God, a little bit of condemnation. Jesus paid the price for all of that. So we never have to worry about any kind of condemnation. A little bit of guilt does not make you a little bit more godly. A little bit of condemnation does not make you more like Jesus. Jesus died so that we could be totally free from all of that every single day. It does not matter how good you are or how bad you are. We could never be good enough to go, okay, now I'm good enough that I don't have to worry about anything or worry about any of my lifestyle things or know that I'm just perfect before God. That day will never, ever come. That's why Jesus came, so that we can walk in total confidence before God and before people and to say, I am totally and completely forgiven of everything I've done, past, present, and future. And God wants that for us. He actually loves us. I believe that's something that God wants to do, not to make us better evangelists, not to make us better anything, just because that's what God wants for us. That's the point of salvation. That's an intrinsic goal. That's an intrinsic good. That's what, that's what God is just all about right now in our lives. But it is also true that until we let God do that, it is nearly impossible to love people outside the church more than we feel like God loves us. Does that make sense? We're, we're coming to people and we're saying, look, you can be totally forgiven of your sins. You can be totally right with God. You never have to worry about anything again. You're going to spend eternity with God. I'm so, you know, I, it's going to be the most exciting thing ever. And then in our own hearts, we're like, that's not how I feel. <laughs> That's not how I feel about my own relationship with God. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because this is one of Satan's biggest schemes as he wants to keep the church under just a little bit of guilt, a little bit of condemnation, a little bit of frustration, a little bit of feeling like God is kind of mad at them or that we're twisting his arm into forgiving us. And it's not true. It is not true. God is for all of us. As soon as you place your faith in Jesus, you never have to worry about anything ever again in terms of your standing before God. Amen? This is hard. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It feels too basic, but it's the truth. I'm going to close with this. Then I'm going to ask us to do something that's going to be a little scary. So look forward to that. This has to become normal. Here's what normal looks like, though. It does not look like each of us leading tons of people to Christ. None of us in this room, including myself, will probably ever lead 100 people to Christ. None of us will probably lead 10 people to Christ in our lifetime. We can all lead a person to Christ. One person to Christ. Let's just picture this. There's about 1,000 people that call High Point their church home. For a church our size, if we had 100 people coming to Christ a year, it would be like in Christianity today. It would be like pastors flying here from all around the country being like, what is God doing at your church? How is this happening? For, for our church to lead 100 people to Christ a year, that would be every adult in our church leading one person to Christ every 10 years. Does that make sense? 
if every adult in our church, of the thousand or so adults, if we led one person to Christ every 10 years, that would be, if it happened kind of statistically normal, it would be 100 people coming to Christ a year. When Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, he was right. He was right. It's not about each of us leading a bunch of people to Christ. It's not about trying to check off numbers off a list. It's about all of us saying, God, give me the heart for one person that I can lead to Christ in the next 10 years. And if we all accept that that's just got to be normal, we will see God do things that we cannot even imagine right now. Imagine literally if there was 100 people coming to Christ and coming in these doors every year. It would be amazing. 100 people getting baptized a year. Lives change, life transforms. And it just comes down to saying, I'm just going to let this become normal. It means, number one, taking advantage of every opportunity. It's going to take many, many, many conversations with many, many people to find that door that's open. So I'm not saying one person, leading one person to Christ every 10 years means that you only engage with one person every 10 years. <laughs> you have to engage with people constantly to find, the, find where God is working. That's why Jesus talks about the farmer scattering his seeds. You're always scattering seeds and you're looking for that open door. But then you're also always in conversation with one person. There's always one non-Christian that you're building a relationship with. That's something we can all fit in our schedule. And if you're too busy for one friend who's not a Christian, then you have to change something. You have to change something in your schedule. You gotta pull your kids out of something or you gotta, you gotta, you gotta change. You gotta change because this is, this is it. This is what God is calling us to. This is the whole point of the whole series. That this has to be the life that we live. I want you to take 30 seconds right now and to think of a name of a person that God could be leading you to, to start this conversation with, to have an ongoing conversation. You can write it down on your phone. You can write it down on the paper. But one person that God might be calling you to build that relationship with. You don't have to lead into Christ tomorrow. You just have to stay faithful to that relationship and know that, okay, because God is continually interested in me, I'm gonna stay invested in this person. So take just a second and do that. Give me a little head nod when you've got somebody. Okay. As we sing this song, I want to invite you to, if you wrote someone's name down or you thought of it, you were saying, I want to commit to this person, I want you to grab a friend, come down to the front, and pray together for that person right now. There's nothing magical about coming to the front, but when we take a step forward and we do something physical with our bodies, it's an incredibly powerful way to say, okay, I'm actually going to do something about this. Because as soon as you get out those doors and you walk into lunch, it's going to be gone. And it's going to slip one ear out the other. So if, if this all gets folded up, you can just kind of stay where you are. But grab a friend. Come on down as the band plays this song. We're going to pray, and I'm going to start right now. God, I thank you so much for this community of believers. I thank you that their heart is to see people come into relationship with you. I thank you that you've given them compassion and love for the people that you've put in their lives. I ask that you give them the courage to pray boldly right now, to pray with conviction, to pray with 
power, God, and call on you. Holy Spirit, we call on you to do a mighty work, to do a mighty work right now in all the people and through us. God, give us the courage to use conversation. In Jesus' name.